Just to share a little time of blessed life moment here this morning. Looking at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, and it says there, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And uh, I'm going to have this put up on the screen here so we can all just see it with the eye gate as well as the hearing it with the ear gate this morning. But financial supply and sufficiency is a part of the abundance of grace that God has provided for us through Jesus. And as we were talking about last Sunday, we do not do works for earning or obtaining God's grace. But once we have received his grace, good works of grace will include our financial giving. As we give, God will keep us supplied to give again and again, like planting, harvesting, and planting over and over again. God's grace realized in the financial area, they're not meant to be hoarded in the kingdom of God. And here's a question for us to ask ourselves. Do I allow myself to be a channel of God's financial blessing, or do I see myself as a stopping point? And if we would answer stopping point, the Holy Spirit will give us a revelation and vision for giving if we ask him. And so for our giving, we have the boxes in the back, for our tithes and offering on the wall. And Lord, we do. We just look to you. We, we thank you that, I know for me, it's like an increasing, it's a process of having that vision. Maybe not a one-time thing, but a process through my life. And we just look to you for that ever-increasing vision of giving that we would be channels for you to flow through to needs in life. And we pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Just a few church family notes. Uh, Viola Smith did pass away on Monday, and her funeral was on Friday in Bemidji. She is residing in heaven today, so just wanted to know you to know that and prayer for her family. Carla Mandrell's mother, Dee, is doing much better. The burns that she had experienced, they were more of the supernatural, well, supernatural, superficial. <laughs> I don't think they were very... <laughs> yeah, the protection was supernatural, that's right. And Glennis is doing much better. She's here with us this morning. Sandy Williamson is in the Bemidji Hospital now, and we continue to pray for her, for guidance for the doctors and so forth, but also just that Jehovah Rapha touch, a great physician. And then um, also Chantel, Chantel's father, Jack Hinshaw, had uh, surgeries last week, pretty major surgery, and especially for the pain, that's what we're praying for him. So we just cover all these in prayer now, Lord. Pray for your grace to be multiplied to each one in each situation, in each family. 
in Jesus' name. And then um, this morning, we in just a few moments, we'll be having the mansion, um, which uh, Mark, Peter, and Linnea will be sharing with us. And um, just a note that on some Sundays, December 23 and 30, there will be no 9.30 classes. And then there will be no regular activities on Wednesdays, December 19 or 26 or January 2. And they will resume on January 9. We have an ongoing quilt sale going on uh, in our foyer. And... Uh, the serving area foyer over there. And then on December 23rd, we have a Christmas service, and it's going to be a concert with Pastor Kent and team, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, and then on the 30th, Sunday the 30th, we're having, you might call it a year's end service, but really it's going to be a Christmas focus, and it'll be like Christmas Jubilee time that we're going to be focusing on and we'll share more about that maybe next week, too. Um, we do have the mailing addresses for Bill Wasco and Sandy Williamson up there available for you, too. So, hallelujah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm looking forward to this very much this time when we have these readers that are going to be sharing this story with us. And the mansion by Henry Van Dyke, Joseph Wheeler, the editor of the 20 Christmas in My Heart volumes where I originally found this story, he states that the mansion had, has had a seismic impact on my spiritual journey. In fact, it's safe to say, he says, that no other Christmas story even comes close, for it is that rarity, a life changer. Though it may appear a bit archaic, it's 100 years old when he said that, it's actually 108 now. Once its message is fully internalized, the reader's life can never be the same again. So, now let's imagine let our imaginations take us to the mansion of the Waitman family in New York City in the year 1910 and allow the Holy Spirit to bring life-changing revelation to our hearts. The Mansion by Henry Van Dyke. There was an air of calm and reserved opulence about the Waitman Mansion that spoke not of money squandered, but of wealth prudently applied. Standing on the corner of the avenue, no longer fashionable for residents, it looked upon the swelling tide of business with an expression of complacency and half-disdain. The house was not beautiful. There was nothing in its straight front of chocolate-colored stone, its heavy cornices, its broad, staring windows of plate glass, its carved and bronze-bedecked mahogany doors at the top of the wide stoop to charm the eye or fascinate the imagination. But it was eminently respectable and, in its way, imposing. 
It seemed to say that the glittering shops of the jewelers, the milliners, the confectioners, the florists, the picture dealers, the furriers, the makers of rare and costly antiquities, retail traders, and luxuries of life were beneath the notice of a house that had its foundations in the high finance and was built literally and figuratively in the shadow of St. Petronius's church. At the time, there was something self-pleased and congratulatory in the way in which the mansion held its own amid the changing neighborhood. It almost seemed to be lifted up a little among the tall buildings near at hand, as if it felt the rising value of the land on which it stood. John Waitman was like the house into which he had built himself 30 years ago, and in which his ideals and ambitions were encrusted. He was a self-made man. But in making himself, he had chosen a highly esteemed pattern and worked according to the approved rules. There was nothing irregular, questionable, or flamboyant about him. He was solid, correct, and justly successful. His minor tastes, of course, had been carefully kept up to date. At the proper time, pictures of the Barbizon masters, old English plate and portraits, bronzes by Bari and marbles by Rodin, Persian carpets and Chinese porcelains, had been introduced into the mansion. It contained a Louis Kahn's reception room, an empire drawing room, a Jacobean dining room, and various apartments dimly reminiscent of the styles of furniture affected by deceased monarchs. That the hallways were too short for the historic perspective did not make much difference. American decorative art is capable de tout, capable of anything. It absorbs all periods. Of each period, Mr. Waitman wished to have something of the best. He understood its value, present as a certificate and prospective as an investment. It was only in the architecture of his townhouse that he remained conservative, immovable, one might almost say early Victorian Christian. His country house at Dulwich on the Sound was a palace of the Italian Renaissance, but in town he adhered to an architecture which had moral associations, the 19th century brownstone epoch. It was a symbol of his social position, his religious doctrine, and even, in a way, of his business creed. He would often say, A man of fixed principles should express them in the looks of his house. New York changes its domestic architecture too rapidly. It is like divorce. It is not dignified. I don't like it. Extravagance and fickleness are advertised in most of these houses. I wish to be known for different qualities. Dignity and prudence are the things that people trust. Everyone knows that I can afford to live in a house that suits me. It is a guarantee to the public. It inspires confidence. It helps my influence. There is a text in the Bible about a house hath foundations. That is the proper kind of mansion for a solid man. Harold Waitman Waitman had often listened to his father discoursing in this faction on the fundamental principles of life and always with a divided mind. He admired immensely his father's talents and the single-minded energy with which he improved them, but in the paternal philosophy there was always something that disquieted and oppressed the young man and made him gasp inwardly for fresh air and free action. At times, during his college course and his years at the law school, he had yielded to this impulse and broken away, now towards extravagance and dissipation, and then, when the the reaction came, toward a romantic devotion to work among the poor. He had felt his father's disapproval for both of these forms of imprudence. 
but it was never expressed in a harsh or violent way, always with a certain tolerant patience, such as one might show for the mistakes and vagaries of the young. John Waitman was never hasty, impulsive, inconsiderate, even towards his own children. With them, as with the rest of the world, he felt that he had a reputation to maintain, a theory to vindicate. He could afford to give them time to see that he was absolutely right. And one of his favorite scripture's quotations was, Wait on the Lord. He had applied it to real estate and to people with profitable results. But to human persons, the sensation of being waited for is not always agreeable. Sometimes, especially with the young, it produces a vague restlessness, a dumb resentment, which is increased by the fact that one can hardly explain or justify it. Of this, John Waitman, of this, John Waitman was not conscious. It lay beyond his horizon. He did not take it into account in the plan of life which he had made for himself and for his family as the sharers and inheritors of his success. Harold, his son, in a moment of irritation, said to his mother, Father plays us like, like pieces in a game of chess. My dear, you ought not to speak so impatiently. At least he wins the game. He is one of the most respected men in New York, and he is very generous, too. I, I, I wish he would be more generous in letting us be ourselves. Uh, he, is always, he always has something in view for us and expects us to, to move up to it. But isn't it always for our benefit? Look what a position we have. No one can say there is any taint on our money. There are no rumors about your father. He has kept the laws of God and of man. He has never made any mistakes. Harold got up from his chair and poked the fire. And then he came back to the ample, well-gowned, firm-looking lady and sat beside her on the sofa. He took her hand gently and, and looked at the two rings, a thin band of yellow gold and a small, solitaire diamond, which kept their place on her third finger in modest dignity, as if not shamed, but rather justified by the splendor of the emerald which glittered beside them. Mother, you, you have a wonderful hand, and, and father made no mistake when he won you, but are you, are you sure he has always been so, so inerrant? Harold, what do you mean? His life is an open book. Oh, oh I, I don't mean anything bad, Mother dear. Uh, I know the governor's life is an open book, a, a ledger, if you like, uh, kept in the best bookkeeping hand and always ready for inspection, uh, every page correct and showing a, a handsome balance, I'm sure. Uh, but, but isn't it a mistake not to allow us to make our, our own mistakes and to learn for ourselves, to live for our own lives? Uh, must we always be working for this, this balance or, or, or one thing or another? I, I want to be myself, uh, to get outside of this everlasting profitable plan and, and let myself go and, and lose myself for a while at least to, to do the things that, that I want to do just, just because I want to do them. My boy, you are not going to do anything wrong or foolish. You know the falsehood of that old proverb about wild oats. Yes, Mother, I, I know it well enough, but, but in California, you know, the, the wild oats are one of the most valuable crops. Uh, they grow all over the hillsides, and they, they keep the cattle and the horses alive. But, 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 but that's not what I, what I meant, uh, to, to sow wild oats, that I mean. Say, to pick wildflowers, if you like, or, or even to, to chase wild geese, to do something that seems good to me just for its own sake, not for the sake of wages of one kind or another. Uh, I feel like a hired man in the service of this 
magnificent mansion, uh, say in training for Father's place as majordomo. Um, I'd like to get out some way, to feel free, perhaps do something for others. Uh, yes, I, I know it sounds like can't. Uh, I know, but, but sometimes I feel as if I can't do... So- I'd like to just do some good in the world. If Father only wouldn't insist upon God's putting it into that ledger. His mother moved uneasily, and a slight look of bewilderment came into her face. <clears throat> Isn't that almost irreverent? Surely the righteous must have their reward. And your father is good. See how much he gives to all the established charities, how many things he has founded. He's always thinking of others and planning for them. And surely for us, he does everything. How well he has planned this trip to Europe for me and the girls, the court presentation at Berlin, the season on the Rivera, the visits to England with the Plumptons and the Halverstones. He says Lord Halverstone has the finest old house in Sussex, pure Elizabethan, and all the old customs are kept up too. Family prayers every morning for all the domestics. By the way, you know his son Bertie, I believe. Yes, I I fished at Catalina Island last June with the Honorable Ethelbert. Uh, he's rather a decent chap in spite of his ingrowing mind, but, but you, mother, you are, you're simply magnificent. Uh, you are a father's masterpiece. The young man leaned over to kiss her and went up to his riding club for his afternoon canter in the park. So it came to pass early in December that Mrs. Waitman and her two daughters sailed for Europe on their serious pleasure trip, even as it had been written in the Book of Providence, and John Waitman who had made the entry, was left to pass the rest of the winter with his son and heir in the brownstone mansion. They were comfortable enough. The machinery of the massive establishment ran as smoothly as a great electric dynamo. They were busy enough, too. John Waitman's plans and enterprises were complicated, though his principle of action was always simple, to get good value for every expenditure and effort. The banking house of which he was chief, the brain, the will, and the absolute controlling hand, was so admirably organized that the details of its direction took but little time. But the scores of other interests that radiated out from it were dependent upon it, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that contributed to its solidity and success. The many investments, industrial, political, benevolent, reformatory, ecclesiastical, that had made the name of Waitman well-known and potent in the city, church, and state, demanded much attention and careful steering, in order that each might produce the desired result. There were board meetings of corporations and hospitals, conferences in Wall Street and in Albany, consultations and committee meetings in the Brownstone Mansion. For a share in all his business and its adjuncts, John Waitman had his son in training in one of the famous law firms of the city, for he held that banking itself is a rather simple affair. Uh, The only real difficulties of finance are on its legal side. Meantime, he wished the young man to meet and to know the men with whom he would have to deal when he became a partner in the house. So a couple of dinners were given in the mansion during December, after which the father called the son's attention to the fact that over a hundred million dollars had sat around that board. But on Christmas Eve, father and son were dining together without guests, and their talk across the broad table, glittering with silver and cut glass and softly lit by shaded candles, was intimate, though a little slow at times. 
The elder man was in rather a rare mood, more expansive and confidential than usual. And when the coffee was brought in and they were left alone, he talked more freely of his personal plans and hopes than he had ever done before. I feel very grateful tonight. It must be something in the air of Christmas that gives me this feeling of thankfulness for the many divine mercies that have been bestowed upon me. All the principles by which I have tried to guide my life have been justified. I have never made the value of this salted almond by anything that courts would not uphold, at least in the long run. And yet, or wouldn't it be better to say, therefore, my affairs have been wonderfully prospered. There's a great deal in that text. Honesty is the best policy, but... But no, that, that's not from the Bible, well, after all, is it? Women, there is something of that kind, I know. May I light a cigar, Father, while you are uh, remembering the text? <clears throat> yes, certainly. You know I don't dislike the smell. But it is a wasteful, useless habit. And therefore I have never practiced it. Nothing useless is worthwhile. That's my motto. Nothing that does not bring the reward. Oh, now I recall the text. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. I, I think I'll ask Dr. Snodgrass to preach a sermon on that verse someday. Using you as, a, as an illustration, I suppose. Well, <laughs> not exactly. But I could give some good materials from my own experience to prove the truth of that scripture. I can honestly say that there is not one of my charities that has not brought me in a good return, neither in the increase of influence, the building up of credit, or the association with substantial people. Of course, you have to be careful how you give in order to secure the best results. No indiscriminate giving, no pennies in beggars' hats, it has been one of my principles always to use the same kind of judgment in charities that I use in my other affairs. And they have not disappointed me. Even the check that you put in the plate when you take the offertory up the aisle on Sunday morning? Certainly. Though there are the influence is less direct, I must confess that I have my doubts in regard to the collection for foreign missions. That always seems to me to be romantic, wasteful. You never hear from it in any definite way. They say the missionaries have done a good deal to open up the way for trade. Well, perhaps, but they have also gotten us into commercial and political difficulties. Yet, I give to them a little. It is a matter of conscience with me to identify myself with all the enterprises of the church. It is the mainstay of social order and of a prosperous civilization. But the best forms of benevolence are the well-established, organized ones here at home where people can see them and know what they are doing. You mean the ones that have a local habitation and a name? Yes, they offer by far the safest return, though, of course, there is something gained by contributing to general funds. A public man can't afford to be without public spirit. But on the whole, I prefer a building or an endowment. 
There is a mutual advantage to a good name and a good institution in the connection of the public mind. It helps them both. Remember that, my boy. Of course, at the beginning, you will have to practice it in a small way. Later, you will have larger opportunities. But try to put your gifts where they can be identified and do good all around. You'll see the wisdom of it in the long run. Uh, uh, yes, I can, I can see it all, all already, sir. And the way you describe it looks amazingly wise and prudent. So, in other words, we must cast our bread under the waters in, in large loaves, carried by sound ships, marked with the owner's name, of course, so that the return freight be sure to come back to us. <laughs> you, you, you put it humorously, but there's some sense in what you say. Why not? God rules the sea, but he expects us to follow the laws of navigation and commerce. Why not take good care of your bread, even when you give it away? Well, it's, it's not for me to say why not, and, and yet I can think of cases. The young man hesitated for a moment. His half-finished cigar had already gone out, and he rose and he tossed it into the fire, in front of which he remained standing, a slender, eager, restless young figure, with a touch of hunger in the fine face, strangely like and yet unlike the father, at whom he looked with a half-wistful curiosity. The fact is, sir, there is such a case in my mind now, and it is a good deal on my heart as well. So I thought of speaking to you about it tonight. Uh, you remember Tom Rollins, uh, the junior who was so good to me when I entered college. The father nodded. He remembered very well indeed the annoying incidents of his son's first escapade and, and how this Rollins had stood by him and helped to avoid a public disgrace and how a close friendship had grown between the two boys so different in their own fortunes. Yes, I remember him. He was a promising young man. Has he succeeded? Not uh, exactly. Uh, that is not yet. His business has been going rather badly, and he has a, a wife and a little baby now, you know. Uh, and now he has, he's broken down, something wrong with his lungs or other. Uh, the doctor says his only chance is a year or, or 18 months in Colorado, uh, and I wish uh, we could help him. How much would it cost? Oh, three or four thousand, uh, perhaps on a loan. Does the doctor say he will get well? A, a fighting chance, the doctor says. The face of the older man changed subtly. Not a line was altered, but it seemed to have a different substance, as if it were carved out of some firm, imperishable stuff. A fighting chance may do good for a speculation, but uh, it's not a good investment. You know something? You owe something to young Rollins. Your grateful feeling does you credit, but don't overwork it. Send him three or four thousand if you like. Three or four hundred, I mean if you like. You'll never hear from it again, except in a letter of thanks, perhaps. But for heaven's sake, don't be sentimental. Religion is not a matter of sentiment. It's a matter of principle. The face of the younger man changed now, but instead of becoming fixed and graven, it seemed to melt into life by the heat of an inward fire. His nostrils quivered, and his, quick, and his breath came quick, and his lips began to curl. 
Principle? You, you mean principle and, and interest, too. Well, well, sir, you know best whether that is religion or not. But if it is, count me out, please. Tom saved me from going to the devil six years ago, and I'd be a blasted, sorry, ungrateful fool not to help him to the best of my ability now. Harold, you know I dislike violent language. It never has any influence with me. If I could honestly approve of this proposition of yours, I'd let you have the money. But I can't. It's extravagant, useless. But you have your Christmas check for $1,000 coming to you tomorrow. You can use it as you please. I never interfere with your private affairs. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. But there's another private affair. Uh, I want to get away from this life, this town, and this house. It stifles me, and uh, you refused last summer when I asked you to let me go up with Grenfell's mission on the Labrador. Uh, I could go now, uh, at least as far as the Newfoundland station. Uh, have you changed your mind? Not at all. I think it is an exceedingly foolish enterprise. It would interrupt the career I have marked out for you. Well, then, here's the cheaper proposition I have. Algie Vanderhoof wants me to join him on his yacht with, uh, well, a little party. Uh, to cruise in the West Indies, would you prefer that? Certainly not. The Vanderhoof set is wild and godless. I do not wish to see you keeping company with fools who walk in the broad and easy way. That leads to perdition. Well, it is rather a hard choice, isn't it? <laughs> According to you, there's very little difference, a fool's paradise or a fool's hell. Well, it's one thing or another for me, I guess. I'll toss it up for tonight. Heads I lose, tails the devil wins. Well, anyway, I'm sick of this, and I'm, I'm out of it. <laughs> Harold, don't let us quarrel on Christmas Eve. All I want to is to persuade you to think seriously of the duties and responsibilities to which God has called you. Don't speak lightly of heaven and hell. Remember, there is another life. The young man laid his hand upon his father's shoulder. Father, I want to remember it. I try to believe in it, but somehow or other, in this house, it all seems just unreal to me. No doubt all you say is perfectly right and wise, I'm sure, and I don't venture to argue against it, but I can't feel it, that's all. If I'm to have a soul, or either to sue, lose or to save, I really must live. Just now, neither the present nor the future means anything to me. But surely we won't quarrel. I'm very grateful to you, and we'll, we'll part as friends. Good night, sir. The father held out his hand in silence, and the heavy portier dropped noiselessly behind the son, and he went up the wide, curving stairway to his own room. Meantime... John Waitman sat in his carved chair in the Jacobean dining room. He felt strangely old and dull. The portraits of beautiful women by Lawrence and Reynolds and Rayburn, which had often seemed like real company to him, looked remote and uninteresting. He fancied something cold and almost unfriendly in their expression, as if they were staring right through or even beyond him. They cared nothing for his principles, his hopes, his disappointments, and his successes, they belonged to another world in which he had no place. At this he felt a vague resentment, a sense of discomfort that he could not have defined or explained. He was used to being considered, respected, appreciated at his full value in every region, even in that of his own dreams. But presently he rang for the butler, telling him to close the house and not to sit up, 
and walked with lagging steps into the long library, where the shaded lamps were burning. His eye fell upon the low shelves full of costly books, but he had no desire to open any of them. Even the carefully chosen pictures that hung above them seemed to have lost their attraction. He paused for a moment before an idol of Corot, a dance of nymphs around some forgotten altar in some vaporous glade. And he looked at it curiously. There was something rapturous and serene about the picture, a breath of springtime in those misty trees, some harmony of joy in the dancing figures that wakened in him a feeling of half-pleasure and half-envy. It represented something that he had never known in his calculated and orderly life, and he was dimly mistrustful of it. It is certainly very beautiful, but it is distinctly pagan. That altar is built to some heathen god. It does not fit into the scheme of a Christian life. I doubt whether it's consistent with the tone of my house. I will sell it this winter. It will bring three or four times what I paid for it. That was a good purchase, a very good bargain. He then dropped into the revolving chair before his big library table. It was covered with the pamphlets and reports of the various enterprises in which he was interested. There was a pile of newspaper clippings in which his name was mentioned with praise for his sustaining power as a pillar of finance, for his judicious benevolence, for his support of wise and prudent reform movements, for his discretion in making permanent public gifts, the Waitman Charities, one very complacent editor called them, as if they deserved a classification as a distinct species. He turned the papers over listlessly. There was a description and a picture of the Waitman wing of the Hospital for Cripples, of which he was president, and an article on the new professor in the Waitman Chair of Political Jurisprudence in Jackson University, of which he was a trustee, and an illustrated account of the opening of the Waitman Grammar School at Dulwich-on-the-Sound, where he had his legal residence for purposes of taxation. Uh, This last was perhaps the most carefully planned of all the Waitman charities. He desired to win the confidence and support of his rural neighbors. It had pleased him much when the local newspaper had spoken of him as an ideal citizen and the logical candidate for the governorship of the state. But upon the whole, it seemed to him wiser to keep out of those active politics. It would be much easier to, and better to put Harold into the running, to have him sent to the legislature from Dulwich District then to the National House, and then, who knows, to the Senate? Why not? The Waitman interests were large enough to need a direct representative and guardian at Washington itself. But tonight, all these plans came back to him with a little bit of dust upon them. They were dry and crumbling like forsaken habitations. The son upon whom his complacent ambition had rested had turned his back upon the mansion and all of his father's hopes tonight. The break might not be final, and in any event, there would be much to live for. The fortunes of the family would be secure, but the zest of it would be gone if John Waitman had to give up the assurance of perpetuating his name and his principles in his son. It was a bitter disappointment, and he felt that he had not deserved it at all. He rose from his chair and paced the room with leaden feet. For the first time in his life, his age was visibly upon him. His head was heavy, and it was hot, and the thoughts that rolled in it were confused and depressing. Could it be that he had made a mistake in the principles of his existence? 
Oh, there was no argument in what Harold had said. It was almost childish, and yet it had shaken the elder more deeply than he had cared to show. It held a silent attack which touched him more than an open criticism. Suppose the end of his life were nearer than he thought. And the end must come sometime, but what if it were now? Had he not founded founded his house upon a rock? Had he not kept the commandments? Was he not touching the law and blameless? And beyond this, even if there were some faults in his character, all men are sinners after all, yet he surely believed in the, the saving doctrines of religion, the forgiveness of the sins, the resurrection of the body, the everlasting life. Yes, that, that was the true source of comfort after all. He would read a bit in the Bible, as he did every night, and, and he would go to bed and then to sleep. He went back to his chair at the library table, a strange weight of weariness resting upon him, but he opened the book at a familiar place, and his eyes fell upon the verse at the bottom of the page. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Oh, that had been the the text of the sermon a few weeks before. Sleepily, heavily, he tried to fix his mind upon it and and recall it. Oh, what was it that Dr. Snodgrass had said? Uh, Ah, yes, that it was a mistake to pause here in the reading of the verse. We must read it on uh, without a pause. Lay not up treasures upon earth where moth and and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Oh, that was the true doctrine. We may have treasures upon earth, oh, but they must not be put into unsafe places, but into safe places. A most comforting doctrine. He had always followed it. Moths and rust and thieves had had done no harm to his investments. John Waitman's drooping eyes turned to the next verse at the top of the second column. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, what had Dr... What had the doctor said about that? How was it to be understood, uh, and in what sense, treasures in heaven? Now the book seemed to float away from him, and the light vanished. He wondered dimly if this could be death, coming so suddenly and so quietly, so irresistibly. He struggled for a moment to hold himself up and then sank slowly forward upon the table. His head rested upon his folded hands, and he slipped into the unknown. How long afterward conscious life returned to him, he did not know. The blank might have been for an hour or perhaps a century. He knew only that something had happened in the interval. What it was he could not tell, and he found great difficulty in catching the thread of his identity again. He felt that he was himself, of course, but the trouble was in making his connections to verify and place himself, to know who and where he was. At last it grew clear. John Waitman was sitting on a stone, not far from a road in a very strange land. The road was not a formal highway, fenced and graded. It was more like a great travel trace, worn by thousands of feet passing upon the open country in the same direction. Down in the valley into which he could look, the road seemed to form itself gradually out of many minor paths, little footways coming across the meadows. Winding tracks following along beside the streams, faintly marked trails emerging from the woodlands. But on the hillside, the threads were more firmly woven into one clear band of travel. Though there were still a few dim paths joining in here and there, as if persons who had been climbing up the hill by other ways had turned at last to seek the main road. From the edge of the hill, where John Waitman sat, he could see the travelers now, in little groups or larger companies, gathering from time to time by the different paths and making the ascent. 
They were all clothed in white, and the form of their garments was strange to him. It was like some old picture. They passed him group after group, talking quietly together or singing, not moving in haste, but with a certain air of eagerness and joy as if they were glad to be on their way to an appointed place. They did not stay to speak to him, but they looked at him often and spoke to one another as they looked, and now and then one of them would smile and and beckon him in in a friendly greeting so that he felt that they would like him to be with them. There was quite an interval between the groups, and he followed each of them with his eyes after it had passed, blanching the long ribbon of the road for a little transient space, rising and receding across the wide, billowy upland, among the rounded hillocks of aerial green and gold and lilac, until it came to the high horizon and stood outlined for a moment, a tiny cloud of whiteness against the tender blue, before it vanished over the hill altogether. For a long time he sat there, watching and wondering. It was a very different world from that in which his mansion on the avenue was built, and it looked strange to him, but, but most real, as real as anything he had ever seen. And presently, he felt a strong desire to know that country into which and where the people were going. He had a faint premonition of what it must be, but he wished to be sure. So he rose from that stone where he was sitting and came down through the short grass and the lavender flowers toward a passing group of people. One of them turned to meet him, held out his hand. It was an old man under whose white beard and brows... John Waitman thought he saw a suggestion of the face of the village doctor who, he had cared, who had cared for him years ago when he was a boy in the country. Oh, welcome. Well, will you not come with us? Where are you going? Oh, to the heavenly city to see our mansions there. And who are these with you? Oh, well, strangers to me uh, until a little while ago. Uh, I know them better now, though. Uh, but you are, I have known for a long time, John Waitman. Uh, don't you remember your old doctor? Yes, yes. Your voice has not changed at all. I'm glad indeed to see you, Dr. McLean, especially now. All this seems very strange to me, almost oppressive. I wonder if... But, I, but may I go with you? Do you suppose? Surely it will do you good, I think. And you also must have a mansion in this city waiting for you. A fine one, I would think. Uh, are you not looking forward to it? Yes, I believe it must be so, although I had not expected to see it so soon. But I will go with you, and we can talk, by the way. The two men quickly caught up with the other people and all went forward together along the road. The doctor had little to tell of his own experience, for it had been a plain hard life, uneventfully spent for others, and the story of the village was very simple. John Waitman's adventures and triumphs would have made a far richer, more imposing history, full of contacts with the great events and personages of the time, but somehow or another, he did not care to speak much about it. Walking on that wide, heavenly moorland, under that tranquil, sunless arch of the blue, in that free air of perfect peace where the light was diffused without a shadow, as if the spirit of life in all things were luminous. There was only one person besides the doctor in that little company whom John Waitman had known before, an old bookkeeper who had spent his life over a desk, carefully keeping accounts, a rusty, dull little man, patient and narrow, whose wife had been in the insane asylum for 20 years and whose only child was a crippled daughter. 
for whose comfort and happiness he had toiled and sacrificed himself without stint. It was a surprise to find him here, as carefree and joyful as the rest. The lives of the others in the company were revealed in brief glimpses as they talked together. There was a mother, early widowed, who had kept her little flock of children together and labored through hard and heavy years to bring them up in purity and knowledge. A sister of charity who had devoted herself to the nursing of poor folk who were being eaten to death by cancer. A schoolmaster whose heart and life had been poured into his quiet work of training boys for a clean and thoughtful manhood. A medical missionary who had given up a brilliant career in science to take charge of a hospital in darkest Africa. A beautiful woman with silver, with silver hair who had resigned her dreams of love and marriage to care for her invalid father. And after his death, had made her life a long, steady search for ways of doing kindnesses for others. A poet who had walked among the crowded tenements of the great city, bringing cheer and comfort not only by his songs, but by his wise and patient works of practical aid. A paralyzed woman who had laid for 30 years upon her bed, helpless but not hopeless, succeeding by a miracle of courage in her single aim never to complain, but always to impart a bit of joy and peace to everyone who came near her. All these, and other persons like them, people of little consideration in our world, but now seemingly all full of great contentment and an inward gladness that made their steps light, were in the company that passed along the road, talking together of things past and things to come, and singing now and then with clear voices from which the veil of age and sorrow was now lifted. John Waitman joined in some of the songs, which were familiar to him from their use in the church, at first with a little touch of hesitation and then more confidently. For as they went on, his senses of strangeness and fear at his new experience diminished, and his thoughts began to take on their habitual assurance and complacency. Were not these people going to the celestial city? And was not he in his right place among them? He had always looked forward to this journey. If they were sure each one of finding a mansion there, could not he be far more sure? His life had been more fruitful than theirs, of course. He had been a leader, a founder of new enterprises, a pillar of church and state, a prince of the house of Israel. Ten talents had been given to him, and he had made them twenty. His reward would be proportionate. He was glad that his companions were going to find fit dwellings prepared for them, of course, but he had thought also with a certain pleasure of the surprise that some of them would feel when they saw his appointed mansion. So they came to the summit of the moorland and looked over into the world beyond. It was a vast green plain, softly rounded like a shallow vase encircled with hills of amethyst. A broad, shining river flowed through it, and many silver threads of water were woven across the green, and there were borders of tall trees in the banks of the river, and orchards full of roses abloom along the little streams, and in the midst of all stood a city, white and wonderful and radiant. And when the travelers saw it, they were filled with awe and joy. They passed over the little streams and among the orchards quickly and silently, as if they feared to speak, lest the city should up and vanish." The walls of the city were very low. Even a child could see over them, for it was made only of precious stones, which are never large. The gate of the city was not like a gate at all, for it was not barred with iron or wood, but only a single pearl, softly gleaming, and marked the place that marked the place where the wall ended and the entrance lay open. 
A person stood there whose face was bright and grave, and whose robe was like the flower of the lily, not a woven fabric, but a living texture. And presently he addressed the company. Come in, you are at your journey's end, and your mansions are ready for you. John Waitman hesitated now, for he was troubled by a doubt. Suppose that he was not really like his companions at his journey's end, but only transported for a little while out of the regular course of his life into this mysterious experience. Suppose that, after all, he had not really passed through the door of death, like these others, but only through the door of dreams, and was walking in a vision now, a living man among the blessed dead. Would it be right for him to go with them into the heavenly city? Would it not be something of a deception or a desecration, a deep and unforgivable offense? The strange and confusing question had no reason in it, as he very well knew, for if he was dreaming, then it was all a dream after all. But if his companions were real, then he also was with them in reality, and if they had died, then he might have died too. And he could not rid his mind of the sense that there was a difference between them and him, and it made him afraid to go on. But as he paused and turned, this keeper of the gate looked straight and deep into his eyes and beckoned to him, and then he knew that it was not only right, but very necessary that he should enter. They passed from the street to, they passed from street, to street among fair and spacious dwellings, set in amaranthine gardens, and adorned with an infinitely varied beauty of divine simplicity. The mansions differed in size, in shape, in charm. Each one seemed to have its own personal look of loveliness. Yet all were alike in fitness to the place, in harmony with one another, in the addition which each made to the singular and tranquil splendor of the city. As the little company came, one by one to the mansions which were prepared for them, and their their guide beckoned to the happy inhabitant to enter in and take possession, there was a soft murmur of joy, half wonder and half recognition, as if the new and immortal dwelling were crowned with the beauty of surprise, lovelier and nobler than all the dreams of it had ever been, and yet also as if it were touched with the beauty of the familiar, the remembered, the very long-loved. One after another, the travelers were led to their own mansions and went in gladly. And from within, through the open doors, came sweet voices of welcome and low laughter and song. And at last, there was no one left with the guide but the two old friends, Dr. McLean and John Waitman. They were standing in front of one of the largest and fairest of the houses, whose garden glowed softly with radiant flowers, and the guide laid his hand upon the doctor's shoulder. This is for you. Go in, there is no pain here, no more death, no sorrow, no tears, for your old enemies are all conquered. But all the good that you have done for others, all the help that you have given, all the comfort that you have brought, all the strength and love that you have bestowed upon the suffering are here, for we have built them all into this mansion for you. The good doctor's face was lighted with a still joy. He clasped his old friend's hand closely and whispered, Oh, how wonderful it is. Go on, and you will, you will come to your mansion next, I'm sure. It is not far away, and we shall see each other again soon. Oh, very soon. So he went through the garden and into the music within, and the keeper of the gate turned to John Waitman with level, <coughs> quiet, and searching eyes, and then he asked gravely, 
Where do you wish me to lead you now? To see my own mansion. Is there not one here for me? You may not let me enter it yet, perhaps. For I must confess to you that I am only... I know. I know it all. You are John Waitman. Yes, yes, I am John Waitman, senior warden of the St. Petronius's Church. I wish very much to see my mansion here, if only for a moment. I believe you have one for me. Will you take me to it? The keeper of the gate drew a little book from the breast of his robe and turned over the pages. Certainly your name is here, and you shall see your mansion if you will follow me. It seemed as if they must have walked miles and miles through that vast city, passing street after street of houses larger and smaller, of gardens richer and poorer, but all full of beauty and a wondrous delight. They came into a kind of suburb where there were many small cottages with plots of flowers, very lowly but bright and fragrant. And finally, they reached an open field, bare and lonely-looking, There were two or three little bushes in it without flowers, and the grass was sparse and thin. In the center of the field was a tiny hut, hardly big enough for a shepherd's shelter. It looked as if it had been built of discarded things, scraps and fragments of other buildings, but put together with care and pains by someone who had tried to make the most of cast-off material. There was something pitiful and shamefaced about the hut, though. It shrank and drooped and faded in its barren field and seemed to cling only by sufferance to the edge of that splendid city. This, this is your mansion, John Waitman. An almost intolerable shock of grieved wonder and indignation choked the man for a moment so that he could not say a word. And then he turned his face away from that poor little hut and began to remonstrate eagerly with his companion. Surely, sir, you must be in error about this. There is something wrong. Some other John Waitman, a confusion of names. The book must be mistaken. There is no mistake. Here is your name, the record of your title, and your possessions in this place. But how could such a house be prepared for me, for me, After my long and faithful service, is this a suitable mansion for one so well-known and devoted? Why is it so pitifully small and mean? Why have you not built it large and fair like the others? That is all the material you sent us. What? We have used all the material that you have sent us. Now... I know that you are mistaken, for all my life long I have been doing things that must have supplied you with material. Have you not heard that I have built a schoolhouse, the wing of a hospital, two, three small churches, and the greater part of a large one, the spire of St. Patron? The keeper of the gate lifted his hand at this moment. Wait, we know all these things. They were not ill done, but they were marked and used as foundation for the name of and mansion of John Waitman in the world. Did you not plan them for that? 
Yes, I, I confess that I thought often of them in that way. Perhaps my heart was set upon that too much. But there are other things. My endowment for the college, my steady and liberal contributions to the established territories, my support of every respectable... Wait. Were not all these carefully recorded on earth where they would add to your credit? They were not foolishly done. Verily, you have had your reward for them. Would you be paid twice? No, I dare not claim that. I acknowledge that I considered my own interest too much. But surely not altogether. You have said that these things were not foolishly done. They accomplished some good in the world. Does not that count for something? Yes, it counts in the world where you counted it. But it does not belong to you here. We have saved and used everything that you sent us. This is a mansion prepared for you. As he spoke, his look grew deeper and more searching, like a flame of fire. John Waitman could not endure it. It seemed to strip him naked and wither him. He sank to the ground under a crushing weight of shame, covering his eyes with his hands and cowering face downward upon the stones. Dimly, through the trouble of his mind, he felt their hardness and coldness. Tell me then, since my life has been of so little worth, how came I here at all? Through the mercy of the king. And how have I earned it? It is never earned. It is only given. But how, now how have I failed so wretchedly in all the purpose of my life? How could I have done better? What is it that counts here? Only that which is truly given. Only that good which is done for the love of doing it. Only those plans in which the welfare of others is a master thought. Only those labors in which the sacrifice is greater than the reward. Only those gifts in which the giver forgets himself. The man lay silent. A great weakness and unspeakable despondency and humiliation were now upon him. But the face of the keeper of the gate was infinitely tender as he bent over him. Think again, John Waitman. Has there been nothing like that in your life? Nothing. If there ever were such things, it must have been a long time ago. They were all crowded out, and I have forgotten them. There was an ineffable smile on the face of the keeper of the gate, and his hand made the sign of the cross over the bowed head as he spoke gently. These are the things that the king never forgets, and because there were few of them in your life, you have a little place here. The sense of coldness and hardness under John Waitman's hands grew sharper and more distinct, the feeling of bodily weariness and lassitude weighed upon him again. But there was a calm, almost a lightness in his heart, 
as he listened to the fading vibrations of the silvery bell tones. The chimney clock in the mantel had just ended the last stroke of seven as he lifted his head from the table. Thin, pale strips of the city morning were falling into the room through the narrow partings of the heavy curtains. What was it that had happened to him now? Had he been ill? Had he died and come to life again? Or had he only slept and had his soul gone visiting in dreams? He sat for some time, motionless, not lost, but finding himself in deep thought. And then he took a narrow book from the table drawer, wrote a check, and tore it out. He went slowly up the stairs and knocked very softly at his son's door, and hearing no answer, he entered without a noise. Harold was asleep, his bare arm thrown over his head and his eager face relaxed in peace. His father looked at him a moment with strangely shining eyes and then tiptoed quietly to the writing desk, found a pencil and a sheet of paper and started to write rapidly. My dear boy, here is what you asked me for. Do what you like with it. Ask for more if you need it. If you are still thinking of that work with Grenfell, we'll talk it over today after church. I want to know your heart better. And if I have made mistakes... A slight noise made him turn his head now. Harold was sitting up in bed with wide open, wide open eyes. Father, is that you? Yes, my son. I, I've come back. I mean, I've come up. No, I, I mean, I've come in. Well, here I am. And God give us a good Christmas together. The end. <clears throat> a great story, a timeless story, and I always like stories that have a little punch in the end, or even like this one all the way through. We're going to close our service uh, today. I want to say a prayer. And before I do that, just remind folks that there is a meal today. Adon and Maria have prepared some food for us, so please stay. Visitors are always welcome as well. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are always in wonder at Christmas time. I ask that you would multiply that to us this season and, and show us new things, new miracles, Lord, new things in our lives, new hopes. And Father, we, we just bless this season and ask that you would touch hearts through all the different media and all the different stories and songs that we hear in the air, Lord. We just pray that your spirit would work its wonders again this year at Christmas time and provide that Savior when we think of that Savior that you have provided. It's just a wonderful, miraculous thing, Lord. And we thank you so much for it. Ask you to bless each one here. And as we go, we praise your name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful day.